trying to do too many things with at the same time. Um, before I start, thanks everybody who came out and like cleaned yesterday. That feels like a really long time ago. I was suddenly like, was that yesterday? That was yesterday. Uh, and thanks to Mary, who's not here, but maybe listening, um, for spearheading it and leading. So, Lord, um, just thank you for this place of prayer. Thank you for your presence here. Would you just keep coming, Lord? And, um, and we do... I just want to echo Dane's prayer, Lord, that uh, you hear, that you regard this place. Um, we just thank you for it, and we want to keep asking in humility, because we know it's not out of any deserving, but just out of your love and your goodness that you attend to our voices and our hearts open to you, to our reach. So keep coming, Lord. Keep us coming, Lord. Amen. So this is going to be um, the second part in a series. I didn't know it was going to be a series, but now I do. So this is part two, and I think there's going to be a part three on the priesthood of all believers, our core value. I'm going to read out, to ready the body of believers in this region as servant leaders who are equipped and trained in the priesthood of all believers. Um, last time I talked, I talked about essentially plugging in as priests in the house, that um, this is not a spectator sport. This is not a um, service like the world counts it, where we come and partake and get what we personally need and go but we come to actually minister. Um, and I was, that was pretty focused on us. Like, we come and we plug in because there's a danger of coming and sitting back and not um, really connecting and being in the house, but not really being part of the house. Um, so it was kind of what I talked about was pretty um, individual-focused. So today, I'm going to talk about the consequences of our being priests before the Lord that goes out beyond just us personally. Um, I think right now this is a crisis of faith in the church right now is believing that it actually matters that we gather together, um, that it actually matters that we minister before the Lord, that it actually matters that we pray. And I can see this manifest in two different ways. One is in the consumer mentality. When we come in and we're like, it doesn't really matter if I'm here or not. I can just sort of take myself and go home. I can not show up. I can um, minimally connect. I can just come to receive. You know, it's the, I'm sure every single person here, if you've been around the church for any length of time, has, said some, has had somebody say to you, I just don't think I'm getting fed, and that's why I changed where I'm going. It's like a really common uh, phrase, but it reveals that this is my primary purpose here, is to get something that goes into my belly, and it matters not if I'm like, it's tastier down the block. 
I've got something that's more filling to me down the block. I'll just remove myself and feel like there's no consequence. So that's, I think, one manifestation is, you know, it got hard to meet together because of COVID. And after COVID, when it, people could come back together, it was like, meh, it doesn't really matter whether I was there or not. This is the lesson I've learned. Um, that's one manifestation of not believing that gathering together matters. The other is, you know what? It's good that we meet together, but there's a lot of stuff that's broken and we better do something more. We got to get out there and move the things because the prayer and the meeting together and the ministering before the Lord, it's good, but it's not really enough. It's not really doing the thing. It doesn't really have consequences in the earth, so we better figure out how to move some things. Two very different manifestations of the same thing, which is I don't have any faith in the gathering of the saints anymore. I don't have any faith that my prayers matter, that um, spending time before the Lord matters. So I'm going to just speak into the consequences of our ministering. This is connected. We have another core value to establish Kalamazoo as a city of refuge and an ambassador location of the kingdom government of Jesus Christ. And what is an ambassador location other than a place that represents another government other than the one in which it is? Um, you know, that's, this is what an embassy exists as in our natural world, is a little island of authority from somewhere else. You go onto those embassy grounds and you are subject to a different government while you're there. And the government around it, um, if it's allowing that embassy to exist, is acknowledging once you cross into there, it's not our rules, it's their rules. So when I talk about consequences, I'm talking about when we come before the Lord into this house, we step into a different authority where... Hopefully, the Lord's kingdom is manifest here and all of the rules and regulations of the world don't apply anymore. We've got a better kingdom that's being manifest in this place, a better authority, better um, cause and effect, for a lack of a better word. Better we enter into this and then better consequences come out of it than the consequences of the, uh, that are out in the earth. So let's go to Genesis 18, 17. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord and do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I'll go down now and see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But 
Abraham still stood before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Um, so there's, the Lord's actually listening here, and primarily he's, we see him listening to Abraham, but he's listening to somebody else too. We just read about twice he says that there's an outcry so great against the sin, the evil in Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord's like, I need to check this out and see what these words are that are coming up to my ears. There's an outcry. It doesn't really specify who. We can assume from the people who are suffering because of the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah that they're crying out and the Lord hears, which is just to say that the Lord hears. Um, he hears Abraham. He also hears the outcry in the earth. He hears, um, yeah. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. There were five less than 50 righteous. Would you still destroy all the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I'll not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I'll not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I'll not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should not be found there, should be found there. And he said, I'll not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he'd finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then the question, of course, is why ten? Like, why did he stop at ten? Right? It's interesting. So um, I don't want to mix up time because the minyan doesn't happen until later. It's not officially codified. But that's um, in Jewish law. You need ten adults praying in order to have a prayer meeting. And if you've got fewer than 10, you don't have a prayer meeting. You've just got a bunch of people. Um, and so I, I'm just saying I'm borrowing a little bit because, you know, this is before this has been laid out as, as law. Um, but there's something in, this isn't just, okay, 10 people is enough to sanctify a city. It's a picture of there are enough people to get together and minister before the Lord on behalf of a city. That is that point where the Lord's like, I have a measure of mercy that I'm going to allow to this place beyond what I normally would for the sake of that ministering, for that sake of that congregation. There's a consequence not in, oh, we've got a bunch, you know, we've got a sprinkling of righteous people through the city and so it's okay. There's a consequence in they're actually getting together in the tabernacle. They're actually forming the meeting place of the Lord where he can come down and touch the earth in grace and mercy. First Kings 8. 
starting in 26. I love that you prayed what you prayed, Dane, because, yeah, it's, uh, this is, this is Solomon's dedication prayer of the temple, which of course is the manifestation of the tabernacle of David's desire to build a house for the Lord, um, handed down to his son. And he prays this, uh, prophetic prayer. I just want to highlight a little bit in it. First Kings eight twenty six. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I've built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and prayer which your servant's praying before you today that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place, and may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. When there's famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone, by all your people Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. So, um, you know, the Holy Spirit um, breathes, inspires Scripture, and gives Solomon this prayer to dedicate the temple. And it has a couple of points that he just kind of reiterates in the prayer over and over again, which is, the first is, this is the place where people come and you hear. It's that gathering together in this tabernacle is specially set out in all the earth as the place that has the consequence of the Lord of heaven listening to the voices of men, heeding them. It's also over and over again, he just assumes. He knows. He's got the wisdom to see the people of Israel are not going to keep the covenant faithfully. Like he just, it's right in there. He's like, when this happens, when they do this, when they do this, and when they see it, this is the place where they come to repent. Again, establishing this is where you hear prayer, and this is where people come to repent to get right with you again. Over and over, 
throughout the prayer. It's about repentance. This is the place where a people find safety in the midst of their enemies. And this is the place where provision is poured out from the Father. In all the things that, you know, he could have prayed about the temple, it's really about let their Lord be this consequence of ministering before you and the resetting of um, your favor and grace back when people come in repentance. Let's go to Luke 19. I need, I need renewal of vision for the impact out of us meeting together. I've been praying about it. Um, I had a really strong, I think I've prayed about it recently because it was brought back to mind by the Spirit um, out in the prayer room. But uh, early in our time here, I think it might have been a morning prayer, I got this really strong sense of the fear of the Lord, like a person who works with really powerful machinery, where if you don't respect the machine, you lose a finger, you may lose an entire limb or your life. I got, just really fell on me, the sense of this, what we're doing together, the sobriety, because we're coming in and the Lord's listening He's looking upon us when we're here. And he responds to what we do here. Whether we do it rightly or not, he still responds. There's an extra measure of of his regarding, which is very sobering, because I know it's clear in Scripture that um, if we press hard enough into things that are not of the Lord, he will honor it. And he will extra honor it when we do it here together. Um, that's another thing that I didn't point out in, the, uh, in Solomon's prayer is the fear of the Lord. Is it's sown all through there. He keeps saying, talking about this is the place um, of the fear of the Lord, of the fear of your name in this temple. So Luke 19, starting with 12. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country, received for himself a kingdom, and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that he returned, having received the kingdom. He then commanded these servants to whom he'd given the money to call to him, to be called to him. 
that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, well done. This is, um, if it helps put in frame of mind, um, from what I can find reading about this, a mina is about three to four months worth of a standard wage. So, um, for what that is worth, to, to, to get an idea of how much money they're being handed. Um, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Then he said to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. And another came, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I'll judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. Um, and read this parable just to point out that there is a, the subject of authority here. Um, that, if you know, if we are an ambassador, uh, if we are looking to be an ambassador location, we are looking to be ambassadors, we are looking to operate in a kingdom that's not the kingdom we were born into as a representative of that kingdom. Um, this time right now is designed to give us some authority that then will be tiny compared to the authority that he wants to give us. This is... You're a kid. Have some, a little bit of responsibility that's going to uh, manifest. It's going to have consequences beyond this. So that as you, when you're matured, when I return, I can take you into the fullness of what I'm dreaming you're going to be and the authority you're going to walk in. So the cons- we have two consequences going on right now for everything that we do before the Lord when we gather together. One is the very real return in the kingdom right now, out into the earth. And the other is even bigger in the age to come. There are, us meeting together here is affecting this city in addition to us but it's also going to affect cities during an 1,000-year reign when we receive our postings based on our obedience right now. It just multiplies out down eternity. Matthew 23. Imagining what you know the difference between I don't know what's it you know I gave you fifteen thousand dollars going off a sort of an average income U.S. income I give you fifteen thousand dollars to manage I come back and then I'm like okay now I want to make you like governor of Michigan because you dealt with that fifteen thousand it's a, it's a big leap in 
and uh, return there. And yet, I'd be pretty sober about someone handing me $15,000 too. So, uh, Matthew 23. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to the works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their... But, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues and the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest amongst you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he's one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gifts on it, he is obliged to perform it, and blind For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we'd lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So, you know, in sort of church teaching history, usually Pharisees get focused on as, okay, this is 
hypocrisy, right? It's bad to be a hypocrite, um, which, of course, it is, and we don't want to be hypocrites. But, um, you know, why out of everybody is Jesus specifically hit the Pharisees so strongly? Why does he have so much zeal for their hypocrisy versus anybody else's? And it's because the Lord has a real zeal for his house and those who claim to represent him, those who say they are ministering before the Lord, those who are um, sharing what he says. There's a special measure of responsibility there. Because, as he said earlier in that big, long passage I read, um, you know, it's, it's not just them. It's not just, they aren't just not going in themselves. They are not just choosing outer darkness themselves. They're actually making it harder for a bunch of other people that might have had it easier if they weren't there. It would have been better for them to step out of the way and go their own way than it is to stand in the way. We have an inoculated culture that's sort of been inoculated against the gospel because it's got a little bit of the gospel, just enough to feel like, yep, I've tasted that. It's not really, it's all cracked up to be. Because there is a church that has been saying the words but not actually entering in. This reaction, you know, that's in the earth right now of like, we're sick of the prayers and thoughts is not without justification because they've been hearing people say, we'll pray about it. And they can know, they feel they're not dumb. They know that the vast majority of the people who are like, yeah, we're going to pray for you, it's a way to just sort of go, yeah, I care. I'm going to go on about my business. I got stuff to do. And it's inoculated the earth against prayer because there's just a little bit of the talk of prayer without actual ministering before the Lord. And it's actually shut the way for a whole generation. It's like, we've heard it. There's no there there. So we have a danger when we take the prayer room for granted and we don't persevere in the Lord. Help me not to take it for granted. Help me to enter into it truly. Help me to really minister before you. Help me not to get into this consumer mindset of, you know, I'm here to get what I need and go about my business. We have the danger of, instead of establishing an ambassador location, instead of creating a city of refuge with the Lord, of actually creating a hard-hearted city of actually dulling it even further into rebellion. And that's 
It's sobering. Lord, I want the fear of your name and the sobriety of your house. Matthew 21, Jesus enters into the temple and drives out the money changers because they were turning the temple into a place of commerce. And we are a nation of commerce. Our culture is really all about. We, we hated kings. We got rid of kings so that we could have commerce. Along the way, there were people who were passionate about freedom and faith. But by and large, we are a nation founded on commerce as a different kind of king. And it's very easy to enter into that just because that's the air we've breathed since we were tiny. That's the milk we were given as babes. And it's hard to see it without the help of the Lord. Um, I'm just going to mention without going to, you can see just the zeal of the Lord for those who stand before him and their righteousness and that they do not lead uh, people astray in Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offer the strange fire in Leviticus 10, Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2, who are like, we're going to figure out how to get better meat out of this. They're like, we don't really like the boiled meat that's prescribed for the people ministering. Let's figure out a way so we can roast some of it because it tastes a lot better. Um, we'll get the parts that we don't have a right to. And they led a whole nation into hard-heartedness that basically the Bible reports that people were like, whatever, I don't, I, have, I don't want any part of the temple and the sacrifices now because those guys have turned it into their personal, we get meat. It has repercussions out beyond there's some corrupt people. It has, it's a big invitation for that spirit to spread. Um... You know, the zeal for the Lord for the ark with Uzzah in his well-meaning, let me make sure it doesn't fall. And then, of course, just to throw in a New Testament because the temptation is always to go, well, that's Old Testament God, Ananias and Sapphira standing up and going, hey, we're giving, representing um, in the congregation where the Spirit had done something so miraculous that people were becoming so selfless because the Spirit was poured out, not because they were great people. And the church was like, you know what? All this stuff, let's just take care of everybody by the Spirit. And they couldn't enter into that. And the Lord was like, I'm not going to let this thing misrepresent me. James 3 
My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We'll all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. They're so large, they're driven by fierce winds. They are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little kindle fires. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it's set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It's unruly evil, full of deadly poison. I tend to have seen this brought out um, to talk about gossip, right? In a sort of natural way, how the fire spreads of gossip in the spirit. And we hear gossip and we want to repeat the gossip and we find ways to talk about the gossip as if we're like, oh, you know, we're lamenting the gossip while we're sharing and all that kind of thing. Um, and then it's also, we talk about the tongue being powerful in what we speak about our lives, how we steer our heart with you know, complaining or rejoicing, those kind of things. But James gives a context of, you know, he launches into this because he's talking about teachers. He's talking about people who speak for the Lord, who share the wisdom of the Lord, and how dangerous that is. Because offering a doctrine can steer hearts. And speaking a thing that is counter to what we're actually doing also steers hearts. The inoculation, um, it, you can actually harden hearts through that. So let's go to John 8. So this is all huh, kind of gone into talking about how, um, how the consequences of what we do here can have negative effects out. But that's only because the consequences of what we do here is also shines out of this place. And we have opportunity because the, the main way all through history that the Lord has chosen to manifest himself on the earth is through people. And periodically, he breaks through with astounding things that, you know, blow us away. That fires and smoke and signs in the sky and um, all of these things. But primarily... Down 6,000 years, his desire is, I want to find the person who's hard for me and let them manifest me. Uh, John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world, but who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And then skipping to Matthew 5, 14, he says, you're the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He named this place the Lighthouse of Prayer, which, um, you know, lighthouses are these sort of cute things we go visit now and are like, oh, isn't that pretty and kind of antiquated and... uh, you know, there's all this nostalgia. But these like were, these were dangerous, dangerous things. People who lived there lived, uh, you know, the lighthouse keeper um, was constantly had to be vigilant, was constantly upkeeping machinery that would break down easily if it was not constantly maintained, was constantly cleaning lenses was constantly making sure, it was staying up through the night to make sure it was lit, was living a lot of times under harsh conditions because these lighthouses are out in vulnerable places where storms happen and had lives hanging on that constant faithfulness. Ships that, you know, were like completely vulnerable if that light went out, that, that, we're doomed, you know. There was no way to get through that place without that light telling them how to get through. And so there's there's like so much weightiness in this place for this city and this region, and who knows how far out we get little hints. I mean, there are people on the other side of the world are seeing what we're doing here, and it's heartening them, and it's actually causing them to want to go in, too. It's not a, like, yeah, that was cool. It's a, I want some of that. I want to enter into it myself, because they're looking to, like, how can we do the same thing? Not, I'm going to sit, I'm going to turn it on, you know, at my periodic time and just get fed by it, but I need I need what the Lord's doing there, too. Um, and then... Lord, Lord, I just want, would you show us? I'm asking for some um, prophetic vision of not just your house of prayer touching this city or even the ends of this, the earth in this age, but down 100, 500 years, 800 years. What are the choices we come and make now where we say yes again to you in the prayer room? What, what are they going to look like? Lord, would you give us little glimpses of stuff that we could never make up? Because you know, like, I, I can't imagine what 800 years from now looks like, Lord. Not with any kind of detail. So would you show us just to, to give us Again, the fear of your name. An understanding of um, what it means to be a priest before a holy, fiery, loving God. The response team can come on up as a team person. <laughs> 
I just thank you. Um, I want to be humbled by the fact that you do incline your ear toward this place, toward your tabernacle, that you are uh, reestablishing the earth. I want to be reverent, filled with awe before it. I don't want to take any of it for granted. I do, Lord, and I repent of that. I want to keep repenting of it until you clean all of that out. Lord, um, I know I know a subject before the king when when he has a window when it's allotted to him to have the king's ear. He wastes none of that time, and yet here we have your ear, and I I don't feel like I want to um, make sure I get every moment, but I want to want that, Lord. Lord, would you help us again to really understand the authority you've placed in there, in this place, the authority you've placed in each of us, and what it means to walk in that authority, Lord. Amen.